Well, good morning and happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord this morning. It all comes down to this. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. This is where we have been headed since the end of chapter 16, when we learned that Ahab sought to replace the one true God, Yahweh. That's where in your Bible where you see LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D. Right there, they've just brought across the name of God, which is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, uh, formerly pronounced Jehovah, right? That's Yahweh. That's what the Bible says there. It's just LORD in all caps. And so they're just maintaining Jewish tradition of not saying the holy name. Anyhow, uh, the point is, is to show that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. And Baal, 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 however it's supposed to be pronounced, is not. Ahab has sought to replace the one true God with a false God. And in chapter 17, Elijah showed up and said, it will not rain except for my Word And from that point forward, what the author has sought to show us is that Israel's God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, is the only God, that he is supreme. And he's done this by showing us God's ability to provide for Elijah by the brook and through the widow. Remember the jar and the jug don't run out. Ravens bring Elijah food. It proves that He can sustain life, that he is Lord of life, and that he is the Lord of death. The widow's son dies at the end of chapter 17, and Elijah raises him up again. We see that the Lord is greater than the Canaanite god of life, Baal, and the Canaanite god of death, Mot. There is one true supreme god. And at the beginning of chapter 18 last week, Elijah has made his way back into the promised land and he has said, I want a showdown. Go, Obadiah, tell Ahab, Elijah is here. the, The champ has returned. There is a royal rumble, rumbaal, afoot. This is where we have been headed. And the conclusion of the matter, by the time that we get to the end of the chapter, is quite clear. The main idea of all of this is that the Lord, he is God. The question before us, as presented in verse 21 of our chapter, who will we follow? The Lord is God. Will we follow him? main idea of the, the section, chapter 17 and 18, same as it has been the last few weeks, is that the world works according to the word of the Lord. Life and death are in his hands. Let's pray, and we'll get to it this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can behold you as our God and not our enemy. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true vine. We ask that you would help us to abide in him by abiding in your commands, submitting ourselves to your Holy Spirit so that we might bear good fruit. We confess, Lord, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing good. That apart from his grace, we would still be dead. 
we give you praise that we are alive even now. And that as he is, so too shall all who trust in him become raised unto eternal life. What good news this is, Lord, that you have set your love on sinners like us. Pray that you would help us to hear your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. 1 Kings 18, starting with verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah comes and he says, there is a showdown before us and we are going to figure out who the one true God is. You need to get off the fence and make up your mind. Either Baal is God or Yahweh is God. Whoever is God, you must follow at the end of the day. It can't just be mere acknowledgement. You need to get off the fence. There's no third way. You need to make a decision about who God is and then obey him. You need to follow him. And he says this to Israel, the people that have been saved out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, brought out of slavery and into sonship, and they have no response. There is a sad silence. They're non-committal. It's a little bit like when I catch one of my children with their hands in the candy jar. And I ask the question, are you stealing candy? I caught one the other day, a whole sleeve of like ice cream sandwiches, one in his mouth. Are you stealing ice cream sandwiches? Silence. All of a sudden, they're postmodern philosophers. What is truth? What really is a cookie? You know, can't really commit here. I think similarly, Israel at this point, they're just not ready to commit. They, they don't know. I think in our culture there is a penchant for declaring ignorance together with arrogance. The idea that I can't really know what the truth is. After all, all truth, you know, it's relative, tossed up in the air. You know, the only truth, I was actually told this in college, the only truth is that there is no absolute truth. And I thought about it and I went, that's an absolute truth claim. Right? Doesn't that, that kind of undermine the whole system here for what, what you're going for? At the end of the day, something is true and it corresponds to reality or it is false and it does not correspond to reality. Sometimes we try so hard to outsmart our common sense so that we might slide out from underneath of God's obligations upon us. Sometimes we use our intellects 
in order to ultimately excuse our sin so that we, really there's, who can be sure if there's a God? Therefore, I can live however I want. He's probably not even there at all. And so, since everything is socially constructed, I can socially construct my own identity. And really, the deepest meaning a person can have is is, uh, expressing themselves however they feel. And the Bible here, throughout, just says, uh, no. (laughs) There is a God who is. He defines reality. And he has knit together each and every person. He has made us male or female in his image. And he's made us to worship him alone and no one else. And Elijah comes saying, whoever God is, you must follow. You may not remain on the fence. Makes me think of Jesus' words, ones who are not for me are against me. Maybe even Joshua's words during the conquest. Joshua 24, I guess it's towards the end of the conquest. But he says, uh, choose this day whom you will serve. And that is precisely what Elijah is doing as all Israel, together with the prophets of Baal, have gathered on Mount Carmel. We all must choose. Will we create our own reality and follow after false gods, or will we submit ourselves to the God who is there? That's what Elijah's saying. Actually, it's not in the text, but I think he might have sang out uh, these lyrics. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite, socialite, with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. This is Dylan, of course, not Elijah. But it fits. Uh, Elijah wants to know, who are you going to serve? Because you have to serve somebody. Church, we we wake up each and every day, and if we are followers of Christ, before our feet hit the ground, we are saying, I am choosing to follow the Lord Jesus today and every day after. We have to choose to follow Christ day after day. We have to remind ourselves that our hope is not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. And so as we work through this passage, ask yourself, who do I serve? Where is my hope? Is it here in earth in these transient things? Is it in myself or is it in the eternal? Is my hope seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things? Or is my hope in myself seated in my easy chair? Where is your hope? Elijah wants the people to decide, and so he lays out the rules for engagement here. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. 
and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So Eliza's saying this is how the contest is going to go. We're, we're going to meet uh, high noon and we're going to go you know, back to back, 10 paces apart, and then draw, shoot. The last man standing, that one is the winner. We're going to put our sacrifices on the altar. The God that answers by fire, well, he is God. And this contest sounds agreeable to the prophets of Baal. They, they are in. They have every advantage. They are on Mount Carmel, the, the mountain of Baal. There are more of them than there is of Elijah, a fact that Elijah points out explicitly. There's 450 prophets of Baal. And I'm sure those 400 prophets of Asherah that eat at Jezebel's table are there also. And then you've got the amphitheater filled with all Israel. This is a big showdown, and it seems, even though we know Elijah is not alone, right? There are a hundred prophets hidden by Obadiah's hand right underneath Ahab's own nose. Even though all of heaven's hosts are with Elijah and more are with him than those who are with Baal, even though the Lord God himself is with Elijah, we know this truth. He's not truly alone, but he is by all appearances, standing alone against hundreds. All the world seems to be against Elijah. And he takes a note out of Athanasius' book and says, if the world is against Elijah, then it is Elijah against the world. He stands firmly. He does not shrink back in the face of opposition. And what a timely word it is to us. That we ought to, even if we feel as if we are standing alone, fighting the tide of culture and of the world, that we should plant our feet there. We should say as Martin Luther, here I stand and I can do no other. It is neither right nor good to go against conscience. It is neither right nor good to disobey God's word. And so on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friends, resolve to stand on the promises of God even when the rest of the world is sitting in quicksand. Resolve to stand alone in enemy territory among the false gods as the false prophets laugh and jeer at you. Stand fast. Elijah is giving every advantage to Baal. And so he allows Baal's prophets to go first. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God. But put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. 
You can drop down to verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. These prophets of Baal, they pile up words and phrases, wild behaviors and frenzied actions. They are ecstatic. The idea is that if they can get enough emotional energy, they can stir themselves up and stir Baal to action. He will answer them. And so they rave, Baal, answer us. They even cut themselves with swords. Their blood is falling to the ground. And they call out and no one answers. There is no voice. False worship is a tragic thing. It is pathetic and deceptive. I think the temptation is to read this section of this passage and go, that really doesn't have any application to me. No, it's irrelevant. But if we think harder about it, I I think that's a mistake. (laughs) A lot of Christians um, struggle with paganism in their worship. And there are two things going on here. Uh, these prophets of Baal, one, they want to attempt to get results, not by asking, but sort of by manipulating through their own actions. Okay? And then the second thing is they are really thinking that if they stir themselves up into an emotional experience, that this is true worship and that the, the, the god Baal will respond to them. That maps out in, in both of those ways onto our lives. I, I think uh, of a friend who once confided in me. He's like, this is really dumb, but I was on my way to an interview, and I, I hate Christian radio. I never listen to it. Uh, you know, I'm more of a country guy. But on my way to this interview, I thought, you know, I really need the Lord's help. So I turned over to, I think it was Caleb at the time, you know. It's like I needed to get positive and encouraging and thought, man, if I listen to this Christian music on my way to this interview, that's going to help things go better. We sort of have a way of doing that, don't we? I really need God to do this, and so I'm going to fast for the next couple days. And if I fast and if I pray, then, then God's sort of obliged to answer my prayer the way I want, right? Well, no, that's wrong. And we know it's wrong, but Sometimes, isn't there a part of us that we try to get God to do what we want through spiritual acts of worship? We should be very careful that we don't squeeze paganism into our Christianity. I think much more pertinent or much more dangerous is uh, the focus on an individual's emotional experience. You can see the pagans here, they are whipping themselves up into a frenzy. And they can really know that they've really cried out to Baal, the unliving God. 
because of their worship experience. I mean, they didn't just get warm fuzzies. I mean, blood literally coming out of their arms. And I don't mean to suggest at all that your feelings and affections, that, that they are not involved in the worship of God. In fact, if you don't have affections towards the Lord your God, there's something wrong. But we can go astray when we worship our affections rather than the Lord himself. When we look to our affections as if they are an index of our communion with the Lord. We can confuse ourselves. I think many Christians make this mistake. They, they worship the worship experience rather than the Lord that the worship is supposed to be directed towards. Such that, you know, if, if the lights aren't down to the right level and the right songs aren't played and the right chord isn't struck and the voice doesn't get to a particular level and I don't get, you know, we used to call them chicken bumps, maybe goosebumps, but you know, those little bumps on your arms. If I don't get those, then I haven't worshipped and that church doesn't have the Holy Spirit and I need to go somewhere where, where I can get fed. What a terrible way to think about how we're experiencing God. I mean, I read a story this week of a girl who, uh, they call it deconversion now. Uh, the old word is apostatize, right? She, she left the faith because she realized that what she thought was an experience of the Lord during worship services was just sort of good vibes. And she realized this, but she went to a secular concert and she went and the lights were down low and the, the band was playing and she put her hands up and she said, wait a minute, this is the exact same experience that I have at church. I can get these good vibes and they don't cost me anything. I don't have to get up early on Sunday morning and worship with God's people. I don't have to obey the Lord Jesus' words. She actually threw out all of Christianity because she thought in her mind that the worship experience were these warm, fuzzy feelings she had during music. It's a very dangerous thing to confuse heightened emotions and frenzy with the worship of God. Again, I'm not saying your affections are not involved in the worship of God, if I can't, I'm trying to be as clear as I can about that. What I am saying is we need to make sure that we are not seeking an emotional experience above and to the exclusion of the true worship of the Lord. We need to be careful that we don't become concert Christians or pagan Christians. We should examine our hearts to make sure that we are worshiping God rather than an emotional experience or aiming to get results out of God. And Jesus warns us against worshiping like pagans in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Remember he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, because they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. You'll see the, the contrast here in a minute between how these pagans behave and how Elijah does. Elijah will pray simply. He won't pile up words and phrases, try to force God's hand. No, he will come as a confident child. 
pray simply. Friends, we can worship God simply through the ordinary means of grace. His word, sacraments, fellowship with his people, song. These are good things. We don't need to look to a spiritual life that is fireworks. You know, think about fireworks like if you've ever gone to a Fourth of July thing. Like, all right, I mean, I went to D.C. one year, all right? I was, we was into the fireworks, and that one's a longer one. It was like a half-hour fireworks, and there's hundreds of them. But then it's over, right? Even if you just have one firework you shoot up in the sky, it's, it's really exciting, but then it's dark again. I think as Christians, when we consider our spiritual lives, we ought to aim not to have sort of firework experiences, though that may happen from time to time. But rather, we should pursue, this is really boring, but, 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 but being like street lamps. Street lamp stays on all night through the dark. There's no, you know, whiz-bang or flash to it, but it puts off consistent light amid the darkness. Likewise, that should be our pursuit to ordinarily, faithfully follow the Lord day after day after day, depending on him for our daily bread. Think back to chapter 17 and the jar and the jug. There's just enough for each day. And the widow, you know, kneading it, making bread, however bread is made. And then Elijah eating it day after day. That's us. That's us walking with the Lord day by day, depending on his grace in the ordinary through changing diapers and going to doctor's appointments and all the other things that are just so humdrum. Friends, God is not absent from those moments. In fact, we need to make sure that we are following him faithfully there. Let us pursue God and worship him according to his word not according to what feels good. Elijah watches these prophets limping around and he can't help himself. Look at verse 27. Their limping goes on for, for hours. And Elijah says at noon, well, I'll just read it. And, and at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself. He's on a journey, or maybe uh, perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Elijah's funny here. This is one of my favorite stories. This is one of my boys' favorite stories. And in part, it's because Elijah is funny here. Right? And his suggestions, you need to know, are not out of left field. The, the pagan conception of their gods was pretty anthropomorphic. Like they, they thought of their gods much like we think of people. So, you know, there's an old story about uh, Baal, Baal. Uh, he, his sister goes to see him at his house, and he's not there because he's on a hunting trip, okay? And so Elijah is using this humor here to put his finger on something, that even their conception of Baal is quite silly. That Call out to him as they might. He's not there. There's no one home. And even if he were home, he's impotent. He's powerless. I do love it. Maybe he's on vacation, he's taking a nap. You know, maybe he had some, some bad scallops or you know, bad oysters. He's relieving himself. There's no such thing as good oysters, by the way. That's for Jerry. He's not even here. He's in the bathroom. You know, and in their, their, obviously, 
That's when they start cutting themselves. Elijah mocks them. And I don't know that we often think as Christians of, uh, of mockery as holy behavior. But I think we should have a category for it. Because the prophets make use of satire and mockery. And so does Jesus and so does Paul. We need to be careful with it. Lest it become an opportunity for us to puff out our chests and you know, deride someone else. The point of Elijah's godly mockery is to tell the truth in such a way that it exposes the lie that is being believed. I think it was Chesterton that said, humor can get under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. Makes me think of uh, the kid's story, The Emperor's New Clothes. Perhaps you're familiar. You know, these, these thieves show up and they sell the emperor new clothes that are made of invisible fabric, which can only be seen by those who are truly wise. In my rendition, the emperor is an elephant, so if you're visualizing along with me, the elephant is, you know, he's in his white boxer shorts, which are populated by little hearts, and he slides into his invisible garments. He spins around and says, how do I look? And people have caught on that only the wise can see these garments, and so they play along. They don't want to be thought fools after all, right? Oh, that's fantastic. Beautiful. You know what? You, you, you should throw a parade. Parade. And so uh, he, he throws a parade in his kingdom, and the feedback is glorious. Everyone, nobody wants to be thought a fool after all. Everyone says, oh, those clothes, I've never seen anything like it. They're beautiful. That is until a young boy tells the naked truth. And he just simply points and says, the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. And all of a sudden, it like dawns on everybody else. And they, they laugh the emperor away. A parable for our times. I mean, in the story of the emperor, could a reasoned argument have persuaded the elephant king? Sure. Yet the public nature of his error made his lie a social contagion which was easier to cure with a simple dose of mockery. There is a category for Christians to wield the, left, the weapons of laughter and of satire to reveal the ridiculous nature of lies which are being believed. I think sometimes the headlines write themselves these days. It was Women's History Month, and I think I counted a handful of men that won awards for being women. Wow, that's, that's funny. So men are better at being women now than women. It's interesting. I'm not going to go further there because I get in trouble, but and it's not that we would want to laugh at an individual that, that struggles with that sort of thing, right? But when we talk about the ideas, now they're permeating our culture, it's okay to use satire. Be wise. Don't use Elijah here as an opportunity to go, well, now I can just be a jerk. Like That's not, that's not what we're after. Godly mockery tells the truth in a way that exposes the lie that is being believed. Elijah's mockery demonstrates 
that the one true God who is does not sleep or slumber. He does not fold his hands to rest. That he is ever-present and he is everywhere. That he always hears the cries of his people. The true God is God. All-powerful. And always capable. So Elijah says, it's my turn in verse 30. This has gone on all day. Elijah said to all the people, come near me, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired, the word in Hebrew for this is really neat, it's it's repaired or healed. I think the healed sort of idea is helpful. And he, he healed the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it out on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. We are tempted to skip this section because it just seems to be, all right, they're preparing for uh, sort of the climax of the story, but I think we miss some things if we do that, if we move along too quickly. Uh, The imagery of him healing the altar is quite intentional. I mean, the text tells us explicitly that he takes 12 stones. Why? Because that is what accords with the numbers of the tribes of Israel. And what he's doing is he's conjuring up uh, the covenant He's reminding the people that they are a divided monarchy because of sin, 10 tribes in the north, one in the south, and that they need to come together as one holy people. They need to repent before the Lord and renew the covenant and serve the Lord their God alone. So he's putting the altar together. It is interesting too, again, this is Baal's mountain. The people are not supposed to have altars anywhere but Jerusalem, but there's an altar of the Lord there that's torn apart. Is sort of symbolic for their current spiritual state. And Elijah's putting it back together. He's saying, you're God's holy people. He's getting ready to put a sacrifice on it. Just call out for God's mercy, a renewal of the covenant. See, reconstitutes this altar. It would be a reminder to the people of their origin and their identity. And this, of course, makes me think of The Lion King. In The Lion King, which I hope you're familiar with this, this is such a great film, uh, something terrible happens in the life of Simba, who is the son of the king, Mufasa. They're both lions. Uh, and Simba runs away from who he is. He runs away from his identity so that he can eat bugs together with a pig and a rodent. Hakuna Matata. That is until one day he's confronted by a monkey. Again, it's a children's movie. And the monkey basically says, you need to remember who you are. He goes and he looks down into this pool of water and then he has a vision of his father. His father appears in the clouds. He's clothed in stars and and he says, I got to get this right. Let me look for it. He says, Simba, you have forgotten yourself 
And listen to where he grounds it. I love this. You have forgotten yourself because you have forgotten me. Remember who you are. You are my son. This is, you know, Simba takes those words and he's like, yeah, what am I doing? I'm hanging out with a pig and a rodent eating bugs. And he goes back home and he takes his rightful place as king. Friends, we are so forgetful. Like, like Simba and like Israel. And we forget who we are, we forget ourselves because we forget our God. And when we forget God, we become happy to eat bugs among pigs and rodents. We settle for less. We need to remember who we are in Christ. We need to set up totems in our lives that remind us that we belong to God. He has made us his sons and his daughters by his Holy Spirit who cries out, Abba. We need to remember the words of Peter right into the church. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. God tells us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, the Lord says to us through his word and through his church over and over again, remember who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. Let us not forget it. The story also conjures up in my mind uh, Genesis 32, when Jacob famously wrestles with the Lord. Wrestles with him throughout the night, and the conclusion in the morning is that the Lord reminds Jacob who he is, the God of his fathers and the God who is going to bless him, and he changes Jacob's name. He says, Israel will be your name. I think that's what's happening here. The Lord is reminding the people that Israel shall be their name and that he is their God. Elijah has stacked the deck against the Lord. The altar is covered with water. It's soaking wet and it's supposed to light on fire. Baal is actually supposed to be, you know, not just the storm god, but he has like lightning in his hand, so this would have been an easy task for him, part of the reason, about answering with fire. Elijah has made this very, very hard, and now he moves to pray. Look at verse 36. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, there's Israel instead of Jacob there, just let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts 
back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. An interesting ending to our passage. Elijah has proven that the Lord is God. God has answered with fire. And we're going to come back to that at the end. But I didn't want to leave us with this odd sort of note. It's actually not that odd. Of Elijah slaughtering these 450 prophets. Why does he do this? He does it because it's what the law prescribes for false prophets. He does it because sin is serious. And it is a serious sin to mislead the people of God to turn and follow other gods. This is true today also. The church is not to tolerate those who lead the people of God astray into sin. Jesus said, Matthew 18, 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Those who would bear the name Christian, yet teach falsely, whether by their life or their doctrine, about who Jesus is, will be held accountable. And they are held accountable, they will be in eternity, and they should be held accountable now. Application in the church is not death. You can breathe a sigh of relief, you know. We're not, we're not killing anybody. But when we do see those who are false prophets, as in our passage, we are called to carry out the practice of church discipline, which culminates in excommunication. We put out from us those who prove themselves to not be of us by their commitment to sin. We always hope that they would repent. That's what Christians do, we're repenters. And yet Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that for those who persist in sin, they're to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that on the last day, their soul might be saved. Friends, we practice excommunication, church discipline, to protect the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ, to protect our church from false teaching, to warn the church about the dangers of sin, and to make plain the seriousness of sin to those who are trapped in it. Church discipline is one way the church stands fast against Baal's prophets in our contemporary world. We must be faithful in opposing wolves when they wear sheep's clothing and walk among us. Elijah ends 
justly, according to God's word, they're a theocracy, he ends these prophets of Baal by carrying out capital punishment. But all of this, of course, is on the heels of the climax of this passage. I mean, all of it has been going here in verse 38. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Such a dramatic scene. Such a simple truth. Lord, He is God. Notice, though, our walk through Leviticus does come into play again here. I know everybody loves Leviticus from a few years ago, so I bring it up as often as I can. Remember, back in Leviticus 1, the burnt offering, which is what this is, is a whole burnt offering, and it accomplishes, accomplishes is a better way to pronounce that word, it accomplishes atonement for the people. This people that are standing on the mountainside for this showdown, that are limping with indecision about who God is, deserve God's wrath. And yet they are given mercy. They're given a call to repentance. They've turned their hearts after another God and they deserve to be slaughtered down by the brook Kishon. And yet, instead of dying and being consumed with the Lord's wrath, fire from heaven falls on that old rugged altar and consumes the sacrifice. Sacrifice dies in their place, and upon seeing it, they fall down and declare, the Lord, he is God. Brothers and sisters, how can we not set our eyes, not on Mount Carmel, but on the Mount of Crucifixion, where our Savior hung not on an old rugged altar, but on the old rugged cross. How can we not consider the wages of our own sin, that we have earned death and darkness and flame in hell forever, and yet God has chosen to set his love on us. God the Father sent God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit to be consumed by flames and wrath for our sins so that we can drink from the river of life. How can we not join Thomas when we behold the resurrected Christ with holes in his hands? How can we not fall down and say, my Lord and my God, my King? Church, remember who you are. The Lord is God. You are his holy people. Jesus Christ is God. That's the point of the text. Jesus Christ is God. He died for our sins. He is risen from the dead. He is worthy of our worship. We should fall at his feet. 
the Lord, He is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your kindness to us that while we were still sinners, You sent Christ to die for us so that we who lived like rebels could be adopted into your family as sons and daughters, given a new name, Christian. We pray that you would help us to become in practice what you have made us and called us in Christ, which is holy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.